Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Iris Ingstrand, Professor Emerita from the University of San Diego. Dr. Ingstrand is a prolific author, scholar, and was even recently awarded a medal by the King of Spain for her work on the history of Spain and the Americas. This is a wide-ranging conversation, and we cover a lot of different topics. And you could say that it maybe meanders a little bit, but in the best way possible. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Iris Ingstrand. So, um, Iris, uh, beyond its geographical placement, what makes San Diego central to California history? Well, it's always my book is called Where California Began. And so it is where California began. And be, it's, you really can't divorce its place from its effect on the, the nation because we are at the gateway. We are right next to Mexico. We, and we're also, people think we're bilingual. Well, we should have our, our uh, people at the university studying more Spanish, but we do have a very great Spanish influence in my students that take the history of California. They say, oh, that's why are there's all these Spanish names here in San Diego. And I said, hello. You know, <laughs> this is how we started. And then we have a very brief Mexican period. But the Spanish period is so controversial in the fact that the Indians, have, you know, they're, they're mad because anybody came and then disrupted their religion. And I don't blame people who have, you know, missionaries, even though their, their motives were according to the Spaniards, very pure, and they wanted to save their souls. And the difficulty is that not the Indians or the people study history from the primary documents, and they don't really understand the mission system. They'll have posters, oh, the Spaniards stole our land, when actually the Franciscans could not own land, and in their instructions, they could only stay here for 10 years, and they had to give the the Indians their land and hopefully it converted them to a Christian faith. So they felt that they were doing good. Then there's the, you know, the soldiers who cohabited with the Indians. And in fact, it was the, the soldiers were actually encouraged to marry Indians. That was a part of the Spanish government, which most people don't realize. That was their goal to produce a new race of mestizos who would be Christian and uh, Spanish heritage and Native American heritage. They they didn't have any prejudice about having them marry and having children, something like that, which is really goes unknown almost by the normal uh, inhabitant of San Diego or anybody in California or anywhere in the United States. Actually, they so misunderstand the goals of the nations that came and, and what happened. I mean, if they want to blame somebody, they can blame the Americans who came during the gold rush, who really did want to remove the Indians and get them out of the way. And all of the bad slogans you hear, only good Indians and dead Indians, they came from the Americans, not the Spaniards. The Spaniards didn't want any of them to be dead. They were always very upset when they died of disease. Same with the Mexicans. There was no wish. They were, they'd be, by the time of the Mexicans, they became vaqueros. They took very well to the horse. They worked on the ranches. Now, I think 
my whole theme always is just get to the primary documents, get to the truth. Let's try to understand what really went on, not what somebody said on the radio or read in the newspaper. Yeah, I, I was talking to, um, Alan, I had Alan Taylor on um, a while back, and we were talking about um, thinking about what happened with the missions. And he he kind of he kind of points to the the lack of an American understanding of tragedy. Um, that you know, it's possible that there's a well-intentioned person, you know, these Franciscan monks that believe they were doing the right thing, and then uh, caused a negative outcome. But to to deal with that kind of paradox of those two things, negative and positive, happening, that that's in, encapsulated in this idea of tragedy in some sense. What do you think of that idea? Well, right. And they also didn't understand the disease. I mean, we have COVID-19 right now. The Franciscans had no clue about why the Indians were dying. We now know that it was like measles, but both the, the, the Spanish and the um, Indians, they got smallpox. Smallpox didn't do, you know, discriminate in any way, but they, they were actually very poor. The Indians probably had better cures of certain diseases. In fact, some of the aloes that we use now uh, are all native. And so neither group was able to understand some of the, the diseases that came. And then the other problem was the Indians obviously didn't understand that once they were baptized and lived at the mission, then they weren't supposed to run away. And, you know, you're communicating in a language that is completely different. The Franciscans were, by the way, they're friars, not monks. And right. they, they tried to train the Indians that this was a good thing, but it's kind of hard to prove something. You're like, you go to heaven after you die when you're talking to somebody. <laughs> we still haven't proved that. <laughs> and uh, so I think, but in the long run, see the other thing that people fail to realize is they learned agriculture. They, they had no, uh, bricks or buildings or uh, actually here we had no agriculture and they were hunters and gatherers and they say well they got along just fine well who knows how many Indians died or didn't die we don't have any statistics they didn't have a real good feel of what the native population what the numbers were we still don't really know how many Native Americans were here when uh, the Spaniards arrived they the estimates are everywhere from 150,000 to 10, you know, oh, probably a thousand more, more or less, or 350,000. You get all different ones from different books. So who knows? Yeah. So going, going back to San Diego, um, when we think about the gold rush, a lot of the emphasis of uh, American migration is into Northern California and Southern California uh, kind of uh, takes a back seat, both because of the lack of water, um, but also just because of where the concentration of the exploration was for gold. Um, and then as things start to, as we figure out ways to move water, population redistributes. So when does San Diego really start to, to populate? Um, when, I mean, after the Spanish and Mexican periods? Well, it's really primarily World War II, I mean, they're somewhat in World War One, that but the bases, you know, started uh, getting popular, and then we had the airfield at Coronado, and 
North Island, it was sort of the automobile and the airplane, maybe the combination of both that led to more population in San Diego, because it really was on the, you know, the corner, California's cornerstone. And, and I remember one of the books, uh, Carrie McWilliams said, well, people travel to San Diego to get cured, but they either die, disappear into Mexico or drown in the Pacific Ocean. Like <laughs> nothing much good ever comes of them. <laughs> and San Diego was kind of at the end of the line and the railroad, you know, they tried the Eastern Railroad through to Arizona. And the other thing is, if there's a real barrier, if, you know, to go to, to the Imperial Valley, you know, you go over those mountains and get into Arizona. So it's like California is walled off by the Sierra Nevada and there's the passes through uh, in the various into Los Angeles and a couple here, but it's not easy. It wasn't easy in those days to uh, travel to California. And uh, you, you come by sea before the Panama Canal, you know, it was forever to, to go around the, uh, Pan before the Panama Canal was built. So right. um, but we're not isolated anymore. Right, we are not. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious because you've done some traveling in Spain and both research in Spain. I'm curious about uh, how Spain uh, kind of views their legacy um, in, in California. I know that there was um, some politics about the statue of Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo um, that happened, uh, whether he was uh, Spanish or Portuguese um, in his ancestry. Um, but that's really all I know about how Spain uh, views that part of its history in California. Modern day Spain, and I lived there for four years altogether, and modern day Spaniards, they sort of feel that they're the parent of all of the, the new world. I mean, from South America, Mexico, and even though they're not really particularly well appreciated in any of the other countries, but they always have a very much a feeling of sort of parenthood. Well, as far as Cabrillo, you know, I only just, did a book on it, and he is Spanish. In fact, I went to, to Palma del Rio, where he was born, and they put up a, a nice uh, plaque honoring his birth. But a lot of, you know, it's funny, today in Spain, and when I was there as a student, of course, all they wanted to do is know about Disneyland and <laughs> several other things like that, which, which impressed everybody. Right. And I have to laugh that they're biggest thrill was if they could ever get to California, they would go to Disneyland. And uh, they're, but they're very, the Spaniards are very generous people and kind. And it's kind of sad they got sort of misunderstood with the black legend because the Dutch and the British wrote really bad stuff about the Spaniards and how cruel they were when they really weren't any more or less cruel or, or what you want to call it than the, the English or the French or the Dutch or the anybody that was colonizing. Actually, you don't go colonize or march into somebody else's country without having to, to make a few enemies. Nobody's going to say, oh, wow, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, I feel like in the curriculum that I teach from, the yeah, the, the Span, Spain in its colonization is kind of visualize this kind of like really dark image like this kind of like that they were much more bloodthirsty than the english and I, we obviously know why that is we want to paint the other people as the the ones that were meaner or harsher yeah um, but point. uh yeah it seems it seems arbitrary because um you know it's not like 
I mean, King Philip's War. I mean, you can you can you can play this game with every colonizer, right? Oh yeah, every all of them. Uh, you know, they put the bad stuff, the smallpox, in the blankets and back east. The English did, and the Custer's Last Stand. And, you know, there's nobody that's really better or worse at being a conqueror, and not the Indians either. I mean, they were terrible. The Aztecs had to they destroyed the Tlaxcalans, and that's in fact how. Uh, Spaniards were able to conquer the Aztecs was because of Indian allies. They didn't do it by themselves. They had 500 Spaniards against 50,000 Indians. And uh, no, I think my whole point is that people would just get down to the primary sources, the archaeology, the anthropology. And I've done a lot of research into the scientific aspects. In fact, that was my dissertation, Spanish scientists in the New World. And the exchange of plant information and diet, things like that. That's what we should, you know, try to zero in on instead of taking every bad thing that happened. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to move past kind of this discourse we have with the blame game? And uh, I mean, obviously we need to, you know, if things have happened, you know, like um, I have been reading uh, Mary Harjo, who's our poet laureate um, and who's done, a, you know, her poems are really kind of a, about the trail of tears and stuff. And I think there's legacies that need to be addressed. Um, but at a certain point, we can't let it, that blind us to what actually happened, right? Right. Do you think it's possible to move past this discourse that we're kind of trapped in right now? Well, it would be my wish that kids had to take more history. I'd cut out a few math classes. That's <laughs> <laughs> but they need to know really what happened. And the Trail of Tears, that was terrible. And there was a place here that Paula Indians were moved, and we've moved them to put the El Capitan Dam. And so a lot of things that that we should try to understand, that, and it's, it's a sorrowful history. I mean, but there's enough really accurate bad stuff that happened. They don't have to make up anything. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of Indians that love horseback riding became great vaqueros. They worked on the ranchos, married into the uh, Spanish families. Kids were born. You know, things, and they weren't always harshly happening, but there were periods of some, like say around the gold rush period when, you know, the gold was the most important thing and Indians could just be, well, so did other colonists get shoved out of the way. It wasn't, it was just anybody that was infringing on the so-called rights of the first discoverers. And, and the thing is that nobody really owned anything. It's whoever claimed it first. Yeah. So you said you've didn't, done some writing on Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo. Where, where do you think he should stand in kind of this uh, pantheon of uh, explorers? Well, his real talent was boat building. And when he got there and he did marry... He did have a few illegitimate daughters from his uh, Indian wife, and then he was he went back to Spain and got married, and had some more sons, all of whom are were <laughs> in his estate settlement. But uh, he was really an explorer. He really wanted to understand, you know, the Pacific Ocean, and they built the boats. He built the San Salvador, which we have at the Maritime Museum, and he's the one in, in his his desire to get the winds and the the whole part of the Pacific to understand how you can get to China. Of course, 
one of his goals was to get to China and find the riches of China. Everybody wanted to, you know, find a shorter route to China, which he died on the way to doing it, and they never got there because their concept of the map at that time, they actually had it, if you went real far north, that the two continents sort of angled into each other. So when you got way up, like, by Oregon or, or Alaska, you'd be right on the shores. I don't know, theoretically, uh, it was it was possible, but it was way too far. I mean, by the time you'd get there, you were already way beyond China. So I think his contributions to the the navigational world are pretty important in the fact that his instructions said, do not engage with the Indians, make friends, you know, give gifts. In fact, two of his men were shot with bows and arrows, and he said, no, don't fight back. And so he tried to really bring something together, and so did Vizcaino 60 years later. But he's not known as any kind of a discoverer, but he definitely is Spanish. We found all his records, and I said, I've been to his home. The Portuguese are not very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. But every time he's maligned by the Indians, we can say, oh, well, after all, it was Portuguese. <laughs> There's, they, you know, they understand it's, it's history, right. and uh, we're trying to just get it right. But mm -hmm. as far as... He had a sad ending, right? Um, oh, if yeah. I remember incorrectly, falling out of that boat. Well, yeah, he either fell on the rocks, he either broke his shoulder or his leg or his arm. There's three different things, but we don't think it was gangrene because he died about five, six days after the fall. And it was what we think now, really, and some of the doctors I've talked to, was a bacterial infection, like some of the ones we have now that kill people off really fast because it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't time. I, I have a couple of doctors that have looked into the, the, where the wound was, if he fell on the rocks, <laughs> did he, yeah, it, you just don't know. A lot of right. people think he was attacked by Indians, but we don't really think that. He was really going ashore because they were held up by the Chumash Indians and they were gonna, they were quite friendly by the way, the Chumash and, mm -hmm. uh, still are good scholars there in the among well a lot of we work with the San I my friend and I who is superintendent of the Carrillo Monument for many years, we've been working with Santa Isabel Indians trying to understand, you know, what how they were uh converted and how the priests treated them and they're still very Catholic. It is interesting that about twenty five percent of the Indians, you know, are Catholic or Christian. So there was some headway if that's your goal in life. Uh, but again, it's, it's hard to say, you know, who has the real, you know, the right idea or the exact uh, way to yeah. heaven. Well, that, that's interesting. And it, it, it's interesting to compare someone like Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo with, um, with some of these uh, American fur trappers and different people that came into Mexico. It, it feels, I mean, when you're describing, you know, don't, don't fight back or, uh, you know, uh, kind of a peaceful exploratory journey, uh, when you compare that with, uh, you know, some of the trappers that came west and basically, uh, you know, started an insurrection in Mexico, it's, it, it couldn't be more, uh, more stark, the, the contrast. And well, it's just the difference in people. Some people are mean and nasty, and some people are nice and helpful, and we still have them today. Look at our government, for heaven's sakes. So, <laughs> yeah. How do you, how our, do you 
how do you use trappers. trappers? How do you well, how do you kind of visualize them? Do you see well, them? Well, I know them pretty well because my master's thesis was on William Wolfskill, who was a trapper. But again, they opened the old, he opened the old Spanish Trail. They dealt with the Indians. They got they traded stuff that they had for food. They they have their horses watered. And they're the American trappers in California, not we're not gonna talk about Mexico, they married in Wolfskill married in the Lugo family, Jose Warner's his family was very close to a lot of them. So there were a lot of intermarriages and it was a, a very mixed group of people. This the, and they all learned Spanish. So most of the Americans trappers who came, they tried sea otter hunting too. And because they had a license from the Mexican government, it's for nutria and nutria is beaver in Mexico, but it was sea otter in California. So they showed the governor here that they had a license to hunt sea otter. And he goes, oh my gosh, I guess you get to do that. But they never were very successful. They were good beaver trappers, but then Wolfskill stayed here and opened a school. He opened the first school in Los Angeles. And so all these surrounding families sent their sons to the school. And they had Indian, a lot of Indian servants, maids, maybe you're not treating them well because you make them servants, but they didn't, you know, they didn't read or write. So what else, you know, you'd have them do. And uh, kind of hard, it's easier for me to picture Mexican California from that point of view. You know, they, they drug the wells, they, they dug the ditches for watering, they taught the Indians, you know, how to help them. Because here they've come to a non-agricultural area that had plenty of natural resources. Now we probably used it all up. But in those days, water was plentiful. And, you know, if you just, you know, you dig a well. And uh, there, you know, underground water, unless, you know, every time we have one of those really bad rains, we know that the San Diego River can really make a mess. <laughs> but in those days, they, they had it pretty under control, although they were always writing down, well, we planted our corn too far from the river this year because last year we didn't have enough water. Now it's flooded. And it was very erratic. Well, it's still erratic about, you know, how much water and how big the river is. Yeah. I um. I recently rewatched the movie Chinatown, which I hadn't watched in a long time with Jack Nicholson. And I was reminded of, uh, of, of water politics. And, you know, I, I, I know that San Diego gets a large amount of its water from the Colorado River um, and the San Diego aqueduct. What, so I guess my question to you is um, how important uh, were these aqueducts to the history and development of the San Diego region? Well, it depends how you look at it. You know, I, I'm kind of an expert in water matters, Spanish and Mexican water law, which, by the way, if we stuck with Spanish or Mexican water, this uh, Roman, from Roman times, it was everyone shares equally. And you divide it up and no one can own the rights to the water. And if there's a drought, everybody has to cut back the same. Well, anyway, when the Americans took over California, we went with English common law, which was for an, uh, an area that rains all the time. So the, the rules of English common law certainly didn't fit with the California, the Southwest. But anyway, that whole Colorado River story is very complicated. And San Diego was not particularly involved in that because we didn't really even join Metropolitan Water District until 
after World War II, after the, the Navy needed so much water. But we had an, a goofy aqueduct that they built in the 1880-1886 that brought water from the Cuyamacas. But we've generally had enough water, except right after they built that aqueduct, it, uh, they, they had a drought. But there's a lot of underground water. And, uh, but if there's so, you know, the funny thing is, this, you mentioned Chinatown, the Owens Valley controversy, which is still not understood by a lot of people and how it, it that Chinatown was not, it was like a lot of movies. It just yeah didn't really it's, it's tell just the fun. truth. It's just fun. Yeah, it's just fun. But uh, if Los Angeles, to tell you the truth, didn't have a lot of Owens Valley water now, San Diego wouldn't have as big an allotment as they get from the Metropolitan Water District and we would have to cut back. So we, we have to be glad that they get Owens Valley water to supplement their Colorado River water. Because can you we explain take, that? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of following, but can you okay. explain that a little bit more? Sandy, uh, Los Angeles gets quite a bit of its water from the Owens River. Right, And right. it gets the rest of its water from the Colorado River, and then it's from its underground, which is not very much anymore. But San Diego has an allotment from the Colorado River because Los Angeles has a little, an allotment from the Owens River. And so if they didn't have that water, we wouldn't get as much water from the Metropolitan Colorado River as we do. So I don't know what would have happened to us if they didn't have the Owens Valley River or Owens River. It's a little complicated. Yeah, but so now we have this, like a precedent. They set the precedent for getting allotments or... Yeah, well, it was when they joined and how much they needed and how much they'd pay. You know, they're always complaining in San Diego that we had to pay way too much for Metropolitan, but they control the river. It's their, their river. They developed it. They built the Hoover Dam and the original water uh, leases in 1928. You know, when we joined, you had to pay all the back taxes to the Metropolitan Water District from 1928, from when it started. And just because we came in in 47, we still had to pay back. But uh, the water is its a very difficult uh, thing to keep, you know, because it's so erratic. When it rains, you're all, everybody's fine. And, and when there's a drought, it's, you know, who, who has the prior rights? And now, well, like in Borrego, they have this goofy, somebody, not the Borrego people, they wanted, somebody is trying to drill through the Anza Borrego, the mountains, to bring the end of the All-American Canal through the desert and through that mountain for multi-millions of dollars to bring more water to San Diego. But it's not more water, it's a different water. It's the same Colorado River water coming in in a different way. And that's stupid. Because if it would increase the water supply, you'd say, oh, sure, let's do that. We can get more water. But what they've done now, the aquifers under Borrego Springs are suffering mightily. They've had to turn a lot of uh, land into fallow, a lot of the grapefruit that they used to grow in order to keep like Casa del Zorro and some of the places in water. Now, the water situation, you know, it's funny that in the Roman law, it said there are certain things that are common to all men, and that was the the sky, the, the air, the air, and the rain, and the shores of the sea. We've managed to ruin all of them. <laughs> the airspace now is so filled with <laughs> air 
floodplain restrictions and of course the rainwater is all everybody's claimed it and the shores of the sea certainly are not free to all men or women let's say yeah i i mean i live in the central valley of california and i watch all the water uh feed those almonds that are down the street from me and you know it's such a complicated thing because you know, where I'm living uses probably, you know, the farmland around me in Fresno County probably uses more water than the city of Los Angeles, you know, municipal. Almonds, almonds are one of the biggest water drinkers. And, you know, the Central Valley is ruining itself by, and it's getting too salty. And, you know, the underground water, it's not going to be able to replenish itself unless they stop. And it's sad because nobody wants to, to have the trees die. But, now you drive through Borrego now and you see all these dead grapefruit trees and orange trees and it makes it fits sad, you know. What do we want? Do we want oranges or do we want more people or but where will the people go if they can't live there? It's there's not a lot of answers. Yeah, it's a complicated <laughs> question. Um so let's uh let's talk a little bit about books about um the history of California that are are special to you. Um, are there some uh, books that were important for you, both maybe that have been written in early on in your career, and then uh, you know new newer books that you've enjoyed about the history of California? No, the real basic history of California that everybody who does California history should start with is uh, the Bancroft Hubert Howe Bancroft, the Bancroft Library, because he'll have about a third of the page in text and about two-thirds in notes, and all of those documents, that's where I spent, I already lived in the Bancroft Library in Berkeley, because all of these documents, and fortunately, we had the big fire, the San Francisco fire, a lot of documents uh, were burnt up, but they he'd had a lot of ladies copying those documents, because he wanted to have his library have a lot of these notes, and so before the fire, he had kind of confiscated in a way had these ladies copying all the documents so i think the bancroft collection and then just there's so many if i want to read about mountain men there's a whole series of mountain men in the history of the far southwest i've written a, quite a few biographies of mountain men um but in san diego mm -hmm. when i was going to school even the parade books the it's like a nine, I think it's nine volumes, eight or nine volumes on the history of San Diego. But he's very broad. So like in the first one, the discovery, and then he has Time of the Bells. Can't remember their names. I have them somewhere in my library. Uh, but they're pictorial. And he doesn't have footnotes, but he's got a very good overall view of San Diego. If I were going to do something and I didn't know anything about San Diego, I'd, just, I'd read all his books. Just go from the first, and the last one ends in about, I think the 1950s or 60s. He was with the San Diego Union, and then he passed away. And that's when I did my book, California's Cornerstone. He was still alive. That was the first one in 84. And so he, I talked to him and I said, Richard, I'm taking a lot of your information right out of your books. He says, I'm so glad you're doing it. It's like you've put my nine books in a trash masher and you made them one and he said then everybody will read it yes oh, yeah. i think that's what's intimidating about uh those bancroft books is just their size and i and it's funny because i think that's the reason isn't that the reason why kevin Starr 
wrote his put the history of California into that one volume in the in the mid two thousands is that yeah his kind volumes of were too way. much for some people. Like he sent me the whole Spanish period. I knew him pretty well, and he says you've got to correct. He says, and he wasn't a very good Spanish speaker. I mean, he was he had a terrible <laughs> accent, and he'd even when he was giving a talk, he'd see me in the audience. He says, "Oh my gosh, here comes my Spanish person. She'll correct me if I pronounce something wrong." So before I say it, I'm going to ask her how you pronounce it. He had a can good you, sense you, of humor. Can you talk a little bit about Kevin Starr um, and who he was and how you knew him? Oh yeah. He, I'll say his, he just had an encyclopedic brain. I never knew anybody that knew so much about everything. I mean, I know a lot about some little subject, but he seemed to, no matter what you'd bring up, he'd say, oh yeah, now when I read a book about that, it was, uh, he's just, oh, North Carolina. Well, I spent some time in North Carolina. What are you doing in North Carolina? <laughs> you know, things like that. And he was quite uh, personable. And, uh, and when he gave a talk or something, he would stay after. And although he was always funny because he'd, he'd call me and he'd say, Iris, I'm coming to San Diego. I'm going to land at 410. Can you pick me up? <laughs> okay. Because I knew then I'd get a chance to talk to him on the way to wherever he's going. And then I always knew that he was eyeing me to take him back if he had to go on a plane. Very active. He would fly down here to give him just a talk and then get the 11 or like the last flight out. I know his, his books were really important for me kind of as like a first step in not, not the single volume, but his kind of like sectional volumes on the different periods. Um, and I, I really liked, I mean, as a person that enjoys literature myself, um, I really liked kind of that emphasis that he had. Um, and I, you know, I, I've, I, I will confess I have not, I have used the Bancroft volumes sparingly. I have not, you know, plowed through them in any uh, respect. The difference is if you had to write something, right. you would go check them and, and check out all the footnotes. If you want to read for pleasure, they're not very pleasurable. And you would read Kevin Starr, who knows a lot of that stuff, but his, he was such a good writer. And where you pick it up, and it was fun to read. You know, there are not very many history books. <laughs> I ask my students that are fun to read that they, you just get information. But his, I don't know, he really had a good knack. Yeah. The other yeah. person I should mention that I did know quite well was Hugh Hauser, and I always feel very bad that he passed away. But I did a lot of um, tramping around with him, and he was another person that brought history to like. <laughs> want to say the common man to everybody and there's still broadcast and my brother will call and he'll say oh Hugh Hauser's on and he's saying something about you know Ramona or something like that but we've had some good California writers I, I couldn't even name all of them I start naming them then I'll, my other one friends will say you didn't name me <laughs> yeah do you um do you share Kevin Starr's love for Josiah Royce yeah sort of but he was not always accurate. I mean, that's, it just depends. And then Kevin was still more of a, a librarian, kind of not too much. He didn't like to do too much in the archives, you know, in right. the old documents. But he did read all the books that had the documents in them. Right. Yeah. He, one of my students was special collections librarian, Gary Kurtz, uh, for many years. And he comes down and, uh, 
we had a lot of Kevin Starr stories. <laughs> His wife was very nice too. Yeah, it's um, uh, no, he, throughout California. I think we have a good history. Yeah, and I the other one that I think about um, that I feel like lots of people have read the Grapes of Wrath or other Steinbeck stuff, um, but I I think that pairing them with like a Carrie McWilliams um, is a, is is an interesting you know because they're written I think Grapes of Wrath and factories in the fields are written in a yeah, similar time. Yeah, written in a similar time, but people don't really know Carrie McWilliams. Um, it's funny because he went, he was at USC, and when I wrote the history of USC, he wrote the foreword uh, to it, and so we became pretty good friends, and I talked to him. His wife is named Iris, and when he uh, wrote, he uh, autographed his copy of the book, he said, to the only other Iris in my life. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's very special. Um, yeah, what, so, um, what is, what is getting, Carrie's contribution uh, to California history? It's more or less the oh, uh, Amos Semple McPherson, uh, the cults. He, he, was, he was a humorous writer. And, uh, and the people that came, and the, the health, wealth, and happiness type thing. And, yeah, he was more the middle section. It wasn't so much the Spanish and Mexican. It was sort of early early days, around the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And uh, Is Factory I, in the Fields the best book to start with him, or is there another book you'd... you'd oh, what's you'd the name? Southern California Country. I so, think that's the name of it. Okay. Yeah, I have that. I, there's one of them that's dedicated to Iris, and so, but it was to his wife, but my students would always think it was to me. And <laughs> I, did, I told him, oh, you can think that. <laughs> well... Yeah. I could talk about books all day. That's my favorite subject to talk about. But um, let's uh, let's finish by talking about good Mexican food in San Diego. I have my own experience uh, with certain places. There's a place that makes very good queso um, in. It's not. It's it's. Um, what is that neighborhood called? The one where the with the the private Christian school, Point Loma. Uh, there's oh. one in Point Loma called Miguel's that I. Oh yeah. Uh, in fact, the owners of Miguel's I worked with, and they also own the Brigantine. So they had the Brigantine and Miguel's, the Mortons. In fact, I just finished a book on the San Diego Yacht Club, and they're bigger than the Yacht Club. So that's, but Miguel's is wonderful. There's two. There's one at Old Town. It's the same, Miguel, right, right. and then the Point Loma. And, uh, but they're, they're two blue Americans, by the way. Yeah, yeah. What are your What are your favorite Mexican food places? Well, my really favorite Mexican restaurant went out of business, and everybody's so sad. It was La Piñata in Old Town. It'd been there ninety years, and and all these Mexican families. And then just like five years ago, they just couldn't handle the rent. And the other one was the one. Uh, the well, it's still the Casa Guadalajara is good. And that's Diane Powers, but she had the other one, the Casa Bandini in Old Town, but then, I don't know, the State Park. Don't get me started on them. And they sort of kicked her out. She started, a, and she put the Casa de Pico back in Grossmont. It's doing really well. And so those were good. But my little favorite one is called Super Bronco, and it's right up in Linda Vista above USD where the students used to go, and they've been kind of hurt from the pandemic because they don't get the students, but they have the best fish tacos, I swear, in mm. San Diego, and they're, they're thick fish in, in two pieces and better than 
the the other fast food ones. But yeah. my uh, my mom, because my mother lived in San Diego uh, when she was a teenager, she worked at this uh, Point Loma Seafood, and so oh. that was that was our family tradition to go to Point Loma Seafood when we were in that part of town. Oh, they they they're still they're so crowded. You got to get there right at the right time. And you have to wait in line. <laughs> it's and, so wild. Yeah, I'll be down at the Yacht Club. We're doing some work for them. And I'll, they'll say, let's go to Point Loma Seafood. Then we'll go, oh, my gosh, it's in Kinko now. You'll have to wait an hour or two. Yeah, exactly. so we, we've got some good places to eat. You know, now we've got the, well, if the pandemic would just, you know, get over, there's the new brigantine right next to, I'm on the board of the Maritime Museum. And so we, they, Anthony's finally closed which was sad because it was kind of an old time fish place. They still have one in La Mesa, but you know, the generations go on and my dentist is, in, is from the Anthony the Yeo family and a professor at USD is from that family. He said that the generation that he's in now, nobody wanted to run a restaurant and you can't blame them. One's a dentist and one's a professor. Yeah. And so well, they, well, life goes on. It does. I, I'm kind of curious, um, we can close after this, but um, what led you to want to write about the Yacht Club? Well, I grew up in Balboa Island where everybody has a sailboat and you just, if you don't ride a bicycle much, but you do sail a lot. And so then when I came down here, I uh, actually didn't belong to the Yacht Club, but somebody knew me from some other reason. And so they came and wanted to know if I would write the history of the Yacht Club. This is in 1991, and it was funded in 1886. So I said, well, that sounds pretty interesting. And I'm from Newport Harbor, and Yacht Club had sailed a lot there. And they said, you know, since we somebody said you knew a lot about boats, I said, well, I'm just like everybody who grew up on a bay you know about boats and so i didn't realize that their manuscripts are all scattered and it was in a trailer and everything so i spent about a year getting their archives put together but now the san Diego yacht club has one of the best archives of a yacht club from 1886 now to the present so i did the one book 18 from founding to 2000 and then in 2000, I did a 10-year update to 2010. And then luckily for them, I said, oh, well, 2020, I'll do another 10-year update. So in beginning of 2020, Harry Gold, who's actually there, he says, it's 2020. And I said, oh, no. And so anyway, I just finished that 10-year update. Uh, so... What do you... Um, I, you seem like a very prolific writer. What What do you... Had, what... I can what can you share with us about uh, your prolific writing and how you do I it? I don't know, because it, it, I, sometimes I think in these, especially with my students, it, it takes them like a week to write a paragraph, and I think, my God, I could have written your whole paper overnight. But I think I have some knack of being able to write fast. And, well, I've written 25 books and probably 50 articles, and and then... But it's not, it's never fun or anything. It's not like that. <laughs> I mean, people say, oh, you must have fun writing that book. And I thought, well, I don't know if your idea of fun is my idea of fun. <laughs> it's very lonely. And they'd say, well, you have your graduate students help you. And I said, the best thing they can go do is go to the library and Xerox a few pages out of the book <laughs> and bring it back. 
but it's hard to get it's it's a lonely profession because you really just can do it by yourself and then you reread it and i have a good friend who who likes to read what i've written to kind of correct it you know and it's good to have two or three people that will read what you've written and they're kind of interested and do it fast so everything i don't know i'm not a very slow mover i guess <laughs> and uh, although sailing is kind of slow no i and i like to write and and i'll i'll just read something and say boy somebody ought to write a biography of that person there's a lot of people in san diego I'd like to do more with but I've been traveling lately. My friend who was the retired superintendent of the Cabrillo Monument, we've driven all, he was in the National Park Service for 40 years. So we visited probably 15 different national parks and every one of them has a terrific story and people that were involved in the founding. No, I just, I think we just look at everything some, from a historical point of view. What was it like? We went to Dodge City because we both watched Gunsmoke as children and so, or teenagers. And so he said, well, you ought to write the truth of the West versus Gunsmoke's truth. I mean, <laughs> and I said, well, that'd be pretty hard, you know. I had, a do I had a dog growing up whose name was Festus. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> we always say now, if it were just Gunsmoke now and we don't like somebody, you just kill them. You know, they were always shooting people. And I think, no, at least we've come a long way from there. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it is. Well, I'm, 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 I'm kind of with Steven Pinker. Um, I think that society's moving forward, even, even though we have lots of challenges still. There's, uh, and when I ask this question to anybody uh, who knows history, if you could have a time machine and go live in any other period of time, where would you live? And the answer is always the present, right? Um, because the, <laughs> any time before this, uh, there there are some challenges. You know, if we go back to the pandemic in 1918. Oh, yeah. I did uh, a couple of uh, Zooms on that. And then the women's suffrage trying to get the right to vote. And uh, I still can't believe that they ever got prohibition. That to me is always a mystery of history that those women could have convinced enough people to vote for it, but it showed it wasn't going to work and it didn't. But uh, that would have been interesting. But I think you're right. And I loved living in Spain, but I don't know if I'd want to live there forever. But I lived there two years and I was home for a while and then I was back again for a couple of years. It's a very nice place, but I. I've always, and I taught in Guadalajara for three summers, and my daughter teaches communication studies and is also bilingual. And uh, so we enjoy all the places that we've visited and where we've taught and all the people. I don't think I've ever been in a place I didn't like for, I've been, you know, pretty much a lot in Latin America and all the places in it through Europe. I don't know, I think it comes from within. I mean, if you're a treat people right they treat you right and if you're a curious person right there's something yeah. interesting believe it or not there's even some interesting things in the central valley where i live <laughs> as as hot and as barren as it can be there's there's lots of interesting stories uh, oh, and lots sure. of interesting now, you know i still think of that chowchilla thing with the bus that was buried with those kids it was the, some anniversary of chowchilla not too long ago and i thought oh mm -hmm. my gosh i suffered over those children <laughs> Well, I, 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 I'm going to break this to you. I'm a school teacher and I teach in Chowchilla. You do? I do. 
But fun fact, the school district that those kids were kidnapped from was not actually a Chowchilla school district. There's another school district that's adjacent to Chowchilla, kind of in the outskirts called Dairyland. Yeah. And that's where the bus was originally taken from. Really? I always think that's the most fascinating thing that ever happened. The fact that they cut out of it. And, yeah. Anyway. And I love Yosemite. My uh, mother's cousin was the manager that... Yosemite Park and Curry Company. So I used to spend Junes there. They'd put me on the train to Merced and then they'd come pick me up and I'd be in Yosemite for a month. No, I loved it. And we'd go to the Awani Hotel and yeah, no, I, the Central Valley to me is, is, well, California altogether, but mostly I've driven up my, my niece and nephew live in Escalon, which is right by Modesto. Okay. So we make that trip frequently. Okay. Well, you can um, always tell when you get there, you see the cattle on the way and the, the wine. You can smell wine if you're in Fresno. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. Well, thank you for talking to me today. This has been a lot of fun and just hearing your stories and uh, getting your perspective. I think it's a, uh, a helpful perspective. And I've, it's always fun to pe meet people uh, whose books you've read. Um, and I, uh, I appreciate your work and you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash history of California. Please stay tuned for our next episode. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.